Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, and welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, spoke to me about the letter he and five other premiers sent to the Prime Minister suggesting to Mr. Trudeau that Bill C-69 and C-48 were both threats to national unity. You'll want to hear what Jason Kenney had to say. Julius Gray is a civil rights lawyer in Montreal. I spoke with Mr. Gray about legislation the Quebec government is pushing through this weekend. One has to do with immigration. The other has to do with secularism. And uh, from the city of Victoria, you know, the council backed down on the Remembrance Day issue they were caught up in. We spoke with Mike Smith of the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio. And members of parliament voted themselves one year of parental leave with full pay. I spoke with two former Liberal MPs about that. Some of what you'll hear on the podcast. I interviewed the Premier of New Brunswick on Friday, as well as the Premier of Alberta. And one of the points that was made, I think by both of them, was that while the tanker ban, only the oil, though, uh, C-48 will be passed by the federal Liberals for the coast of northern British Columbia. There's no such ban on the East Coast. We've talked about that many times. 850,000 barrels of foreign oil come into this country every single day. We pay for that. 850,000 barrels because we don't have the pipelines to take the Canadian product from Alberta, some from Saskatchewan, to the Irving Refinery in St. John, New Brunswick. So uh, there's a lot in this interview with Jason Kenney. It has to do with the letter. There's talk about Trudeau, equalization payments, C-69 and C-48. A lot of content. Have a listen. This is part one of the interview with the Premier of Alberta. Premier, what's the message that you brought to New Brunswick and Premier Higgs? that we need to be partners in prosperity, that uh, Atlantic Canada, Eastern Canada has benefited enormously from the wealth developed in Alberta. Uh, Albertans have contributed over $600 billion net to the rest of the country over the past uh, six decades, and uh, Atlantic Canada has been the big recipient of that. We've also created a lot of great jobs in Alberta for Atlantic Canadians moving westward, and uh, that we need to work together to get a fair price for our energy. Now, I didn't, you know, try, I don't need to persuade Blaine Higgs, the Premier of New Brunswick, is is a, a real champion of uh, unity, of prosperity, of energy east, of building pipelines. He also stands with us in opposing uh, the, the carbon tax and, and uh, job-killing bills like C-69. But we're trying to build an alliance of like-minded provinces across the country to stand up to Ottawa policies that are hurting the regions. How does it feel for you to be actually on site where Energy East should be? Yeah, last week uh, I toured the Irving Refinery with uh, Premier Blaine Higgs, and that's exactly where the Energy East pipeline was going to terminate 
bringing uh, 800,000 barrels per day of Alberta crude oil to the largest refinery in Canada. Uh, Irving was going to, had committed to uh, upgrading about 10% of that as a start. Uh, The rest of it would have been sold on global markets, getting a fair price. That means getting like $65 a barrel instead of $35 a barrel like we get now. That would have added billions of dollars to the Canadian economy, it would have created more jobs for Atlantic Canadians, and would have meant that Atlantic Canadians would be consuming ethically produced Canadian oil rather than dictator oil from Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. So standing there, I felt like um, it was a foggy day, and it just felt like uh, the island of lost opportunities, that, that Justin Trudeau took that, snatched that away from us, that that pipeline that could have been the 21st century equivalent of the transcontinental railway that united Canada. You know, I'd like to talk to you about, and come back to Energy East in a moment, but the letter that you and the other five premiers signed and sent to the Prime Minister concerning Bill C-69 and Bill C-48. He scoffs at your concerns. He scoffs at the concerns of six premiers, says you're playing games when you raise the issue of national unity revolving around those two pieces of legislation. Well, I, I think the trip of the prime minister is to try to unite the country, not to divide it and attack the provinces. You know, the truth is, Roy, it's not just six premiers. It's it's nine provinces out of ten, and, and at least two of the three territories who are opposed to his No More Pipelines law. I just got off the phone with uh, Newfoundland Premier uh, Dwight Ball, very clear in his opposition to C-69. I just met with uh, Premier Prince Edward Island, same view, uh, had to a dinner with the Premier of Quebec a couple of days ago, opposed to C-69. This is this is the entire country, with the exception of the NDP government in British Columbia, every major business group, many First Nations, um, and the Senate of Canada. By the, by the way, a majority of the senators appointed by Justin Trudeau voted to rewrite his bill, accepting all of the amendments put forward by the former NDP government of Alberta. Every political party in my province opposes this bill. This transcends partisanship. It transcends region. Um, it is a jobs-killing, divisive bill, and it says in particular to Alberta, while we are down, we're going to get kicked again by the federal government. We've got 200,000 unemployed Albertans. Average family incomes are down by six points over four years. Our economy has shrunk by 4%. We might be in our second recession in four years. This province that has contributed hundreds of billions of dollars to the rest of the Federation, and now we've got a federal government telling us that even though eight other provinces agree, and the Senate of Canada, and every major business group, the Prime Minister is basically telling us to to, uh, to get lost. That is not what a Prime Minister focused on unity or prosperity does. Well, you do recall when he was uh, first elected, one of the first interviews he gave was to the New York Times, and he said that his ambition for Canada was for this country to be the world's first post-nation state, whatever that means. Would- yeah, I just still don't know what that means. He also went right away to the uh, fancy billionaire party in Davos, Switzerland, and said that he doesn't, unlike his predecessor, Harper, he didn't want Canada to be, do- to be known for its resources, but rather for its resourcefulness. Well, Roy, I can tell you there is no industry that is more resourceful than the oil and gas industry. There is no industry that invests more in science and technology, research and development, uh, and a culture of constant innovation 
transportation than the oil and gas sector. That's why we've reduced by 20% the carbon output of a barrel of uh, Alberta oil in the past decade. It's why we're on track to reduce it by another 10%. It's why Alberta heavy oil now has a lower carbon footprint than the average barrel produced around the world or in the United States. That's because of our resourcefulness when it comes to extracting our resources. You can't run an economy on fancy coffee shops and seminars about innovation. It actually takes real products that are in demand. That includes our resources. That includes our oil and gas. That's what pays the bills. And the Prime Minister, through this bill, C-69 and his West Coast tanker ban, is telling Alberta that he's trying to landlock us, letting the hardcore U.S.-funded environmental groups defeat Canadian workers. Premier, what are your real options? If the Prime Minister moves ahead with C-69, he said they'll accept some of the uh, suggestions to change the bill, but he's not going to get rid of it. He won't get rid of C-48. What are your options, and what are the options the provinces really have? Well, he is... uh, So, to give uh, some context, the Senate adopted 188 amendments, all of those put forward by the Alberta government and uh, business groups. About three-quarters of those have been stripped out. In fact, all of those put forward by the NDP government in Alberta and the industry groups, so save a couple. So the bill is now reverted to back to its original form, what we call the No More Pipelines Law. No major projects will be proposed in this country given the uncertainty. That's just not my, not, not, it's not only my opinion. That's the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. That's the Federation of Independent Business. That's the Council of Chief Executives. That's the Association of Petroleum Producers. That's nine of nine provincial governments believe that. So our next option is to sue the federal government. Unfortunately, he's putting us in that position. If these bills become law, we will launch an immediate constitutional challenge of Bill C-69 on the grounds that it clearly violates our exclusive constitutional jurisdiction to regulate the production of our natural resources. We will also challenge Bill C-48, the Northern Tanker Ban, because it, it, it... prejudicially attacks only one province, Alberta, and only one product, bitumen. And um, it doesn't try to limit OPEC tankers from Saudi Arabia coming into the Bay of Fundy. It does try to limit uh, Canadian tankers taking Alberta energy to global markets. That's bizarre when you just think about it. It's bizarre that we're importing 850,000 barrels a day into eastern Canada. That's perfectly fine with the federal government, but uh, no tankers uh, with the C-48 for the, uh, for the coast of, of British Columbia. Now, everybody wants to be environmentally responsible, and that's the approach you take. But I, when I think about uh, what's happening in eastern Canada versus the West, it just is bizarre. Then there's the column that Jack Mintz wrote. Only one country is contemplating destroying its own resource sector, Canada. Great column. Got me then also to thinking about it has to be increasingly difficult to attract investment into this country, into our energy sector, when you have a prime minister performing the way this prime minister is performing. Well, that's exactly it. And that costs us jobs. We've lost tens of billions of dollars of investment from Alberta uh, as a result of these kinds of policies. Uh, And by the way, every one of those dollars was reinvested in the oil and gas sector in other jurisdictions with lower environmental standards, with no carbon taxes, with no tanker bans, with nothing analogous to C-69. And in many cases, countries that are OPEC dictatorships that treat women like property instead of people and and countries like Russia that use oil wealth to spread uh, conflict around the world. 
According to the International Energy Agency, there will be a growing global demand for oil and gas through at least the year 2040. The question for us as Canadians is whether we will supply a part of that growing demand or whether we will abandon global energy markets to some of the world's worst regimes. I submit that Canada should be... um, We need more Canadian energy to displace dictator oil. Last week at uh, the Irving Refinery uh, on the Bay of Fundy, I saw uh, Saudi tankers bringing in OPEC oil. They bring in about 250,000 barrels a day uh, from OPEC countries to fuel the Atlantic Canadian economy and much of the eastern seaboard of the United States. Don't you think the world would be better if that instead came from Saskatchewan and Alberta? Of course. Of course. What's going to happen with TMX? Well, we hope on Tuesday the federal government will approve it. Uh, after all, they bought it. Uh, but approving it is not enough. They, we've, we've got to get that thing built. We've got to get shovels into the ground right now, this summer, this construction season. We, we can't afford to lose another year. And so our measurement for success is not paper approval. It's actual construction. Uh, Minister McKenna promises that January 1st, Alberta will be visited with federal carbon tax. Well, Albertans just voted against the carbon tax uh, two months ago in our election, and that's why Bill Number 1 of our Conservative government uh, was the Carbon Tax Repeal Act. Um, And uh, now that she's given us formal notice of her intention to punish Albertans for the crime of heating their homes and filling up their gas tanks to drive to work, uh, we are going to challenge uh, the federal Liberal carbon tax in court. We believe it's an an unconstitutional violation of our jurisdiction. We are going to have a levy Uh, on major industrial emissions uh, that will affect about 60% of the carbon emissions in our economy that will reduce by about 40 megatons uh, CO2 emissions. But instead of sitting down with us and talking about, you know, how to find a compromise or make that work, what we're getting from this hardcore ideologue, Catherine McKenna, is nothing but threats to punish ordinary people. She wants to make widows on fixed incomes pay more to heat their homes in the winter. We're going to defend those low-income people. We're going to fight the federal liberal carbon tax and court. Minister McKenna seems to forget another date, October 21st. We'll see what happens on that particular date. Premier, I have one more question for you. You also met with uh, the Premier of Quebec, Francois Legault. Um, The province of Alberta has really underwritten much of Quebec's financial requirements over the decades. And, and you're asking for, or you're suggesting to the province of Quebec that they become more agreeable to more pipelines or pipelines entering the province in a, in a responsible manner from Alberta. What are you hearing back from the premier? Do you have any sense that there's some give and take of, uh, possible from Quebec? Well, I, I had a good conversation. Uh, unfortunately, I saw no flexibility on uh, the government of Quebec supporting uh, something like Energy East. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm just trying to begin that relationship and remind Quebec that they get $13 billion a year in equalization, that most of that comes from Alberta taxpayers, and that in the long run, they can't continue to expect us to pay the bills to benefit from our resources without allowing us to develop them. He did, however, say that he is in support of uh, a gas, natural gas pipeline and liquefied natural gas uh, export facility in Quebec that could help us to get a fairer price for Alberta-produced natural gas, which would also help to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. We could ship that to the developing world, helping them to convert from coal-fired power production to much cleaner natural gas production. So, uh, you know, and 
he did agree with us in opposing Bill C-69 and a number of other things. So I'm, I'm going to take what we can with, uh, with in terms of agreements with Quebec at this point. Uh, but we will um, ultimately, Roy, I've, I've, I've served notice that if we don't start getting, if we can't get a coastal pipeline and fair treatment for, within the Federation, we are prepared to put into play the whole principle of equalization by holding the referendum in Alberta on Section 36 of the Constitution, which is equalization. And we are prepared to do that in the fall of 2021. So whether it's Quebec or Ottawa, we were sending a clear message. Albertans are demanding fairness in the Canadian Federation. Well, uh, I think Mr. Trudeau has to certainly can take into serious consideration everything that you're putting forward. The other premiers are putting forward also. Ipsos polling just uh, earlier in the week shows that nine of the ten provinces, in nine of the ten provinces, voters are uh, turning away from uh, the Trudeau government. They've lost 14% of national support over the last year, so October the 21st is a date that will loom largely for them, and I'm sure they're paying attention to your determination, Premier Kenny. Or they ought to be. Well, well, I, I, it's about creating partnerships for prosperity, and I appreciate the, the growing support uh, from provinces across the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've benefited from Alberta, and, and we just need fairness. Thank you for the time today. Thank you very much. So there's the uh, interview with the Premier of Alberta recorded on Friday, and yesterday I played you the interview with Lane Higgs, the Premier of New Brunswick also recorded on Friday. The next 127 days are going to be extremely busy and extremely challenging, but the bottom line of it all is the bottom line. And our economy is being harmed by the fact that our energy sector is not being properly dealt with and we're not given the opportunity to develop and sell our natural resources on the international marketplace, which wants our resources, regardless of what you may be hearing from the other side. Always happy to talk to you the other side, by the way, Mr. Trudeau. Anytime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Quebec Premier Francois Legault is driving two pieces of controversial legislation through the Quebec legislature this week. Yesterday, they passed the new immigration legislation, Bill 9, because Quebec controls its own immigration, as well as the secularism legislation, Bill 21. That's going to pass today. And they're keeping the MNAs, the members of the National Assembly, in for the weekend until all this is taken care of. And there are some people, many people perhaps in the province of Quebec who are unhappy with it. Uh, but what is the general sense and what is the, uh, how acceptable is what, uh, what Legault is doing? Uh, we're going to find that out because joining us now is Julius Gray. He is Quebec's leading civil rights, human rights lawyer. He's also a pretty darn good author, Capitalism and the Alternatives, Mr. Gray's book, uh, which was published last year. Julius, good to talk to you and thank you for taking time on Father's Day. 
It's a pleasure. Now, let's begin with uh, the uh, the immigration bill. Let's, let's start with that. What What is it about and what is changing? Well, Mr. Legault campaigned on reducing immigration. I think it's a stupid idea. Uh, and immigration is all to Quebec's advantage. Uh, but he did get support for that, and in, in the same way that Mr. Trump got support for anti-immigration things, and for the, you know, I I, I was present in Milan a few weeks ago when Mrs. Le Pen was addressing a public rally. She got support for that sort of thing. So there is something in people that wants them to put up barriers. And so he did that, and he canceled pending applications. That was completely unfair. He could have dealt with them, and uh, uh, people uh, supposedly are going to be refunded, but without interest for the money they made. He's basically expropriating it. It's not fair. It's not right. But as with the secular legislation, I suspect that he has a lot of support for it. Now, uh, so it was part of the uh, part of the election campaign. Both of those promises, both of those commitments to change the immigration law and to change the secularism issue, or to carry on with what was the Quebec Charter. I think it all began with Jean Charest, did it not? About ten or twelve years ago. Well, and the Parti Québécois. It all began with the. Parti well, yeah, we can go back a lot further than that, can we? Yeah. Isabelle and Charest government. Nobody, uh, you know, in, in our times, unfortunately. Uh, all over the world, and you see it in all sorts of countries that are nominally democratic, uh, whether the left or the right is in power, no one has the courage to stand up against these populist issues. And so all three parties have introduced bills like that, although this one is uh, very far-reaching, and it's very far-reaching in the sense that it attacks the jobs of the most vulnerable people. It will tell Muslim women who uh, that they claim are being forced to wear hijab, which is unproven and almost certainly untrue. And uh, it, it'll ban them from teaching, which is, and, and daycares, which are two of their uh, most uh, common uh, occupations. And it'll ban Sikh men from the police. And the Sikhs have had a, a long tradition of uh, frequent and honorable service in police and in the army. So, and, and it will lead to the absurd con- conclusion that a Sikh with a turban can be a member of the RCMP, but he can't be a member of the Quebec, Sûreté du Québec. It's, it's uh, uh, really unfortunate, but nobody stands up to the populist uh, ideas. Well, is that because that's what the majority of people in the province of Quebec wanted to do so, to stand up or to change it or to deny it or to, to refuse it would be political suicide? Well, that's what people thought about language. But in fact, both the liberals in the end, after the United Nations uh, struck down Bill 178 in the 1990s and the PQ afterwards with Bouchard and, and, and uh, let the thing there, and it didn't cost them anything electorally. It it turned out that if you reasoned with people and if you said, look, things are not bad and we've achieved basic predominance of French, uh, we don't have to take that one step, which is uh, contrary to the charter, people will go with you. And I think right now, if it had been explained to the people of Quebec uh, that, uh, first of all, there's no problem outside Montreal. And in Montreal, there's no problem either. It's just, it's, the whole thing, the, the, the funny thing about this bill is that nobody's going to be better off. Uh, if, if Quebec wants to uh, integrate immigrants, it would do better by not subsidizing ethnic schools and uh, putting them all to public school and not forcing them not to wear things. Uh, the I think it could have been done, and a little a bit of courage and honesty would go a long way. 
with a whole political system. Is it possible? Uh, is it possible to separate these two pieces of legislation in a discussion, or do they just, by their very existence and the fact that they're being passed or rammed through the le- legislature this weekend, does it make it impossible to separate them in a discussion? No, they're quite different. Uh, but however, the Devoir of all things, which is a national newspaper, made the connection between these two and the taxi drivers, who you know they, did, uh, they uh, didn't compensate them reasonably, and they are mostly ethnic to make the argument that this government is particularly uh, concerned only with the rights of uh, white francophones. Uh, that was the devoir. I was astounded that the devoir was that direct about it, because we usually, all sorts of people beat about the bush, but they don't quite say it. Uh, but this article in the devoir did. Uh, they're separate pieces of legislation, but they're both part of the sort of new populism. So what changes then? What If you take the immigration bill, and Quebec has its own uh, in, in a largely independent immigration policy, does it not? I mean, from the, yes. from Ottawa. So, if you take the Quebec legislation, immigration legislation by itself, what is the change, in fact, that's being that was ran through yesterday? Well, they've reduced the numbers for one year. They've also said they're going to increase them afterwards. It seems to me to be a, a completely contradictory thing. We'll see if they do increase it, but they have cut the numbers. And they have, of course, left a lot of people who had made preparations and who had applied. Uh, they cut them adrift. Oh, so that's why that's why the eighteen thousand have been told they can't come in. Those yeah. that have applied, because it, it's a, it's a numbers thing now with this law. Yeah, it's a numbers thing. It's a reduction. It turned out that it was popular, just like it was popular in the United States, just like it's very popular in Britain, and it accounts for the Brexit votes. Uh, you know, no Polish plumbers anymore. Uh, so it's popular in Quebec to say we're going to reduce. Not we're going to cut completely, but we're going to reduce. And that's what the issue is here. Was I correct, Julius, about uh, what the Charest initiative was? It was the niqab? Yeah, it, it had to do with the niqab. And then later we had initiatives, you know, but voting with the niqab and so on. But the niqab is a different problem. There are almost no women wearing the niqab. And one could argue that for teaching, it's unsuitable. I mean, how, how do you teach a language if they can't see your lips? So the niqab is a uh, uh, special and narrow case. There's always an extreme where you could justify it. The question is, why would you take a scarf off somebody? When I was a boy in the 50s, uh, my mother wore a scarf. Most women wore scarves, and that was part of how you dressed in the 1950s. So why is it that the scarf right now, is uh, because it's a religious symbol for some, uh, is, is completely unacceptable? acceptable uh the thing the thing is you're perfectly right though this type of legislation tends to be popular all polls show I mean, how do you get 80 how, i mean julius how do you get 83 percent of canadians to support anything well because this is a very narrow view you'll get more than 80 percent of canadians to support the proposition uh, that uh, uh, murder is wrong, but uh, if you take an extreme I hope so. case, then of course you'll get you'll get most people. But here, and that is a serious problem, you do get 60, 70 percent of the people favoring legislation, which is obviously not. Uh, if you think about it, if you analyze it, it's not right and it's not decent, and there are good reasons for it. They're not bad people. For so, so, so what? what I mean, how does the legislation particularly affect Quebec society? The secularism law that's going to be rammed through today. 
Well, it's not going to affect them right away, especially since they're grandfathering the, the present holders. But it means that a certain number of people will not be able to hold public positions in teaching, in police, and so on. And these people will have less opportunity. They will feel less at home. And there's absolutely no reason for it. If they're wearing um, identifiable religious objects. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, that would include a kippah, that would in, uh, include a uh, uh, turban. Right. We all know that the reason for it, what was, uh, what was unpopular, was the hijab. Uh, but uh, once again, it's legislation that doesn't have a winner. It has losers. But there isn't anybody in Quebec who's going to be better off tomorrow because of this. They should have been dealing with uh, uh, environment. They should have been dealing with uh, med- uh, refinement of our medical law, etc. But this... Uh, get support. And one of the reasons is the reluctance of people to accept multiculturalism. Now, I can understand that. I'm not a fan of multiculturalism. I think people should integrate and so on. But what they don't understand, and, 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 and uh, an honest discussion would bring it out, these accommodations are not an encouragement to multiculturalism. On the contrary, they may help in integrating people. They are individual accommodations. They're recognizing people's right to dissent. Uh, so you say it's grandfathered. So people who are currently employed in the public sector and they're wearing their religious symbols, that's fine. They can continue. It's, but they can't get a promotion and they can't change. They can't get a promotion. No, and they can't change. They can't go from job to job. They're stuck in the job in which they're having. So if you're teaching, uh, for instance, in a school, you can't become assistant vice principal. You can't... Uh, uh, Get a higher, go to a, a higher level supervisor. Well, who decides? Who, who decides whether? I know some are obvious, but maybe some are not so obvious. Who decides what is and what isn't a religious symbol? Well, they brought it, initially they had no definition. Now they brought in a very broad definition. But, you know, one of the questions that you have to ask yourself is, suppose people who want to protest against this law assign non-believers, uh, people who are not Muslims, you will wear it on Monday and you'll wear it on Wednesday, etc. There is no religious sign. It's a political protest, which is not outlawed by the, by, by the bill. Uh, it's obvious that it's not easy to define a religious sign. And then I'll ask you some other questions. Is a sari a religious symbol of Hinduism or is it just a form of dress? Uh, and there are many, many more questions of, uh, of that nature. Of course, it's very vague. And the answer is it was popular because everybody thought it was taking aim at the hijab. And they always are ambivalent. They use the word burqa hijab indiscriminately where there are arguments against the burqa, but there are very few against the hijab. Uh, I, I, I go back to, and you know, I lived in Quebec for 10 years recently, came back to Ontario in 16, but uh, I, I just feel, and this has been going on for a long time, I only have a few seconds here, there's been a sense, and it's been argued in f- by those who favored separation from the rest of Canada, that f- Francophone reality, Quebec reality is under siege from English Canada. That now, I take it, has, in the 20 seconds we have left, Mr. Legault is expanding that. Yeah, but I think this would might be popular in large parts of English Canada, too, in the countryside. And uh, I think there's a difference, even in Quebec, between uh, separatism, which is either good or bad, but is not anti-anybody, right. and uh, nationalism, okay. which is the problem. Always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Julius Gray. His book is Capitalism and the Alternatives. 
The reaction in the country was, say what? When uh, Victoria, British Columbia City Council, decided that uh, they were going to support a motion by one of their councillors that on Remembrance Day, the military should pay the expenses that the city was paying uh, to hold the Remembrance Day ceremonies to participate. And uh, you know there's been national reaction. Mike Smith, the Vancouver province, uh, great columnist, good friend of this program, and radio talk show host on CKNW Radio in Vancouver, was the one who, Mike, you guided this across the country. You kept us aware of what was going on. So let me. So thanks for joining us. And what's wrong with Victoria, Victoria Council? What's wrong with those people? Well, we had a really emotional, angry week here in Victoria over this issue, Roy, and it all started, like you said, a week ago Thursday when City Council passed this motion asking the Department of National Defense and and very notably Veterans Affairs Canada to pay for Remembrance Day here, and it was it, it upset and offended a lot of people for a number of reasons. First of all, the motion said they wanted the military to pay for quote-unquote military events in the city which they which they defined as Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day is not a military event. It's a community event to remember and to say thank you to the brave men and women who defended Canada. Um, also, the the timing of this could not have been worse. Last Thursday, June 6th, everybody knows that date, D-Day, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. <laughs> That's when they passed this motion. And it was also a piddly amount of money. I mean, the city of Victoria spends about $15,000 on Remembrance Day, which is 0.006% of the city's budget. So for many, many reasons, it was just an an offensive thing. It took them a week to back down. Um, They were falling all over themselves here the the other day, apologizing for it. And and the the motion is not going forward now. But, boy, it sure upset and offended and hurt a lot of people. Right across Canada. I mean, right across yeah. this country, it, it upset people. And you and you wrote and you communicated and spoke with veterans who said, we're not going to hold our event there. We're done. Yeah, we're I mean, as soon as this happened, I started hearing from veterans uh, in, in B.C. who were very upset, and including one group that contacted me and said, we are planning to hold a big 50th anniversary reunion of... Uh, members of the Navy who served on the HMCS Terra Nova that was a Canadian destroyer that served a lot of missions all around the world. And and these guys in particular in the 1970s had shipped out to Vietnam, and their mission was to protect Canadian peacekeepers who were stationed there at the end of the Vietnam War. Their mission was to sail into Saigon and and to take out Canadian peacekeepers if there was any trouble. One of their guys died on that mission, a guy who got sick, and he, he died in hospital in uh, Singapore. These guys were really offended, Roy, at, at this motion, and they were holding a big 50th anniversary reunion. They canceled that reunion. They said they were boycotting the city of Victoria. We had other uh, backlash as well. We had London Drugs, big big uh, chain of drugstores here, <laughs> actually came out and said that they vol- they volunteered to pay for Remembrance Day in Victoria. If, if this was such a big problem for the city of Victoria, this 15000 bucks, you had a drugs drugstore chain offering to pay for it. So there was like a, a lot of that kind of embarrassing, 
backlash for the city, and it's not surprising that they, they back down on it. What's what's more surprising on it is that the motion went forward in the first place. It's ridiculous. And isn't the councillor who proposed the motion the same guy who proposed uh, $10,000 or so to pay for council lunches? Yeah, this is another one that offended a lot of people that uh, uh, sometime before they asked effectively asked veterans to pay for Remembrance Day. They passed they passed another motion to spend $10,000 of taxpayers' money on catered lunches uh, for themselves at their council meetings. So, you know, here you got a council that says they can afford $10,000 for uh, catered meals for themselves, but they can't afford $15,000 to honour veterans in the city. So... You know, and, and yeah, the, both motions were moved by the same councillor. And, and the, by the way, the, the councillor who uh, mo- moved the motion, these motions, Ben Isett, is a guy who's described himself as an anti-militarist and a pacifist, and which I which I don't think is a problem. You know, I mean, he says that he's been critical of things like um, Remembrance Day. Uh, having the Snowbirds acrobatic team from the Royal Canadian Air Force perform in Victoria, uh, the city bidding for the Invictus Games for wounded soldiers. He's been on the record for a lot of these things. It's not surprising that he moved a motion like this. What is more surprising to me is that these other councillors lined up behind him and voted in favour of it as well. And they were the ones who were falling all over themselves apologizing this week. Thanks for what you did. Thanks for joining us today. You really led this. Thank you. Anytime, Roy. Mike Smith, good guy. Vancouver Province, CKNW Radio. It's getting around all over, really all over the world, that uh, there's a certain new um, participant on Twitter. And this certain new participant on Twitter is getting to know the, the system and anticipates that he's going to be very active and uh, that you'll be interested in what he has to say. Now, he's recorded a couple of video versions of his welcome to me in uh, the Twitter world, and have a listen to this. Hey, Twitter world. You know, for years, people have been able to say whatever they want to say about me with no accountability. But now I get to challenge a lot of that BS and set the record straight. Any idea who that is? No. You don't know, Michelle? No. <laughs> Mr. McTague, do you know who that is? <laughs> Sound like George Chavello. <laughs> we're going to yeah. play we're going to play it again. Okay, hold on. I want to see if Michelle can get this. Listen, it's somebody who's extremely famous. Uh, he was extremely famous for all the right reasons and then extremely famous for all the very wrong reasons. Here, listen again. Hey, Twitter world. You know, for years, people have been able to say whatever they want to say about me with no accountability. But now I get to challenge a lot of that BS and set the record straight. Orenthal James Simpson. Oh. O.J. Simpson. He's on Twitter. Uh, Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I think he, I think he already has over. I think he's already got over four hundred thousand followers, and he's only tweeted a couple of things. So, yeah, I I don't know. I can't remember what I I actually decided I was going to follow and see what he's going to do. Um, it, some people are having fun with his Twitter address, and they're taking uh, they're, they're changing the address a little bit, but enough to fool followers so that you'll be f- following a fake. O.J. Simpson. Anyway, you can work it out. Oh, yeah. There's so many fakes out there. Anyway, there you go. O.J. Simpson on Twitter. 
And 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 on one of them, I don't know. I don't think he said it on this one, but he said on another one that he's planning on getting even. And huh. that that kind of worries me when I hear James Simpson talk about getting even. <laughs> He's yeah, getting even. <laughs> That's what he says. Hey, so now we have uh, the the news story is one of the news stories, one of many, of course, is that uh, members of Parliament are going to be receiving uh, one year's parental leave paid. That's what they voted themselves. And uh, I've been getting emails from listeners, uh, some saying, "Oh, I get it. You know, you have a baby and want to, you need you need." parental time off, parental leave, but then there's other people who are saying, uh, hold on, this is a job where you're supposed to be representing the people of your constituency, by extension, the people of the country. You have to be present for votes. You have to be able to go to committees. You have to do the job because it's a special job uh, and there should be no such uh, um, changes made so that you get a year's parental leave. Um, Michelle, what are, you, what are your thoughts uh, about this? Well, Essentially, they went from the the letter of the law was 21 days, which like maternity leave, which I didn't think was enough. But now I think this is too generous, and I hate the timing. They're sliding it in before they go on summer break. So, and nobody, from what I gather, nobody really, there wasn't a big fight about this, which is maybe not a surprise. Dan, what's your sense of, of the correctness or incorrectness of this? <laughs> well, I wish I could have taken it when I was an MP. We had five children from the Well, you never would have been at work then. <laughs> I would have been completely out of work. And, of course, uh, I'm sure that uh, folks would have been very happy with me, given my very able staff and uh Shout out to them because they're still working, thankfully, and doing you know wonderful things for the for themselves and for the country, but not necessarily in politics. But I, I'm wondering how a member of parliament functions, uh, or that is to say, how you get constituents to be properly served if you're going to be leaving for a year's time. I and mean, goodness knows, I, I have no trouble with anybody. Uh, you know, have, having a, a child that's very hard on moms and on parents and dads. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm just not sure how you square that with uh, effective representation. I know that, uh, and Michelle will attest to this, this is really a full-time job with a full-time commitment, and there really isn't Ooh. much time for anything else. I, uh, In my time, thank goodness, Daniela was uh, highly supportive in her own profession, but uh, I don't think any of us got a year off. We certainly uh, could have used a, a couple of years worth of sleep afterwards. A year with pay. Right. I mean, how do you how do you jo- how do you do the job? Would you two have been able to do what was required by your constituents? Never mind the party. We know how the party can play games because we know what happened to you, Michelle. Yeah. And uh, and I'm sure Dan had his occasional run-ins with the <laughs> oh, 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 yeah with, with the <laughs> with the, with the uh, management structure of the Liberal Party. But uh, could you have done your jobs? No, you you know, because you you won't be there for votes. Well, it's it. Which it's is important. Yeah, and the votes are what count yeah. in a lot of cases, and sometimes they're critical. And we're looking at a potential minority government, and they're going to be even more critical. I suppose the one argument is you can get on a plane and you can fly in for votes. <laughs> 
Nobody. Yeah, no. Oh, really? <laughs> That's not likely, Roy. Not especially in a minority government where you can't set these things up. Uh, you know, no. you know, in a you can't plan ahead for these things. And so we mm-hmm. had what minority governments in Canada from 2004 to 2011. Uh, so that would be what nine years, eight years. Uh, uh, there, there were many times where it was extremely close, and uh, to the point where it was we're talking nail biters. So and you couldn't leave. They wouldn't even let you leave the hill. That's right. Well, didn't we have situations where very critically ill members of parliament have come back to vote um, at at critical times for for the party and for the government? Yep. Chuck Cadman. uh, Chuck Cadman. I remember the names of the ones that I remember well that uh, came through uh, at the last moment. Our government's made a change and someone switched parties. Uh, I mean, these things were, you know, uh, within, you know... (laughs) the skin of your teeth basically and you're winning by one or two votes that's uh you know that's not enough to uh, do you know something I, I i'll make this argument though if you're if you're if you're if, if your grasp on governing is so tenuous that one or two votes is going to make the difference between you continuing to govern or there being an election there ought to be an election well i tend to agree but you know they slip things in dan knows this and that's why it was all hands on deck. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's it's an interesting question because how do you say to somebody, well, you're not uh, either you shouldn't have a child for four <laughs> years because you now have this different job, this special job that you've taken on that is public service and you are a public servant so you must understand that, and you shouldn't have a child. But then, if you run again and you're elected again, now it's eight years. And if you run again and you're elected again, it's twelve years. Uh, or you say to somebody, you say to everyone who's there, "Look, have a child, but you're on your own. Go back to the twenty-one days. Stay with the twenty-one days. Uh, make your own arrangements. But this is the job, and this is what's expected of you." Yeah, I think this is um, no doubt. Uh, those who uh, came up with this, wanted to make sure that they were consistent with labor laws and uh, the, the current uh, situation. But, you know, it does, this is a very different job. And uh, it's not to deny anybody anything, but as a member of Parliament, you certainly have benefits and recourse to other uh, forms of help. And, uh, you know, it's not uncommon to see some members bringing their child into the House. Uh, that's not only accepted, it's encouraged. Uh, but I think this might be pushing the envelope. And I, I suspect it has a lot more to do with the fact that. Uh, you know, uh, in trying to be all things to all people, we tend to forget that uh, as early as this October, we're likely looking at a minority government, and that's going to uh, really put that kind of situation to a test. Imagine, uh, Roy, having this discussion, yourself, myself, and Michelle, uh, in a year from now, when, uh, you know, a, a, a crisis of confidence comes up, a, a motion in the House um, on a matter of confidence, finance, and you are within three votes away and two people are gone on maternity leave. Uh, you know, and, and I'm sure that that extends to parents as well. So it could be paternal leave, yeah. uh, depending on the circumstance. So yeah. this is really uh, going to be very interesting. I don't think uh, many people gave this a lot of thought. That's the first thing that came to my mind is how does the government survive, especially given uh, that we do have minority governments in this country and uh, they tend to uh, they tend to be razor thin at times. We have about exactly, two. Exactly, but how lucrative... It is, is the other issue. Spell that out, please. Lucrative. What? 
spell it out. Lucrative. I mean, I don't want you to spell the word lucrative. L U. But go ahead if you want. But but make. What's the point you're making? They voted it for themselves. Okay, I got it. So here here you can you can time having a child. So that you can get the salary, the benefits, the pension plan contributions while you're a member of parliament? The, the, the height of cynicism. Well, you know, uh, politics today <laughs> I'm just has kidding. made a lot of people cynical. I know, I'm just joking. Yeah. Sort of. Uh, 127 days to the election. You're both veterans of election campaigns. You're not, neither one of you is running uh, this year because. Because you choose not to, and because I don't think that the current occupant in the leader's chair in the Liberal Party would want <laughs> no, you to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I won't, I won't uh, <laughs> lose him. <laughs> How come we can get a man on the moon in 1968 and we can't get my tag's phone to work properly? <laughs> So, so how, uh, how boisterous do you expect this next 127 days uh, to be, Michelle? Well, or choose any word you want. I, I chose think boisterous. It is going to be boisterous because it is going to be a nail biter. Mm-hmm. You think so? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I think yeah, the, I um, it's going to be a very close election, and of course, yeah. it uh, it will mean that uh, several parties may actually hold the balance of power, which at the end of the day, for most uh, on the far left, will be something they can be very ha- happy with. Uh, you're going to have Bloc NDP. Uh, what's few left of them, and uh, Green uh, allied with Green, the I think, party. is going to come on strong. Yeah, yeah. I, what does that mean? An extra an, M- an extra MP and increase your presence by <laughs> a third? Well, you know. Yeah, I get it. Well, we we see what three Green members in uh, in British Columbia have done. They've really tied up an entire. Well, party. that's interesting. So, yeah, it's a good point. Okay. Yeah. I thank you both for uh, coming on and talking about this. Uh, there was a lot of interest, a lot of attention paid to it. How can you do the job if you're an MP and you're taking a year off uh, and uh, you're still going to represent your your constituents, but at the same time, how do you tell somebody not to have a child? Or if you have a child, then understand that there's no special, no special consideration. It's the 21 days, and that's the rule that was always in place. But it's changing. The times they are, they're changing. Mr. McTague, Ms. Simpson, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Roy. Good talking to you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.